Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep the Mining podcast. And today I've got a very interesting guest and a very interesting topic, which I think a lot of you and a lot of the audience listening will be um, very interested in. So I've got John Mulligan, who is the director, um, or sorry, who is a director at the World Gold Council, um, who are a market development organisation for the gold industry. I'm going to let John explain more about what the Gold Council is, because I don't really want to guess and assume assume things. So I'll let John explain um, what the Gold Council does, um, and I'm sure it's going to be an interesting uh, podcast. So I'd like to welcome John Mulligan. Hi, John. Rob, hi, and thanks again for the uh, opportunity to to talk to you and your listeners. Yeah, appreciate appreciate your time. So first, I uh, obviously want to, um, first of all, get a little bit of background about yourself and um, sure. what you've done, obviously, through your career and your journey. Um, and before we get on to the World Gold Council um, and obviously explain in more detail what what you guys do. Um, and then I've just got a series of questions um, that I'd like to ask you. So, um, yeah, I hand it over to you. Sure. Well, well I, I am, as you mentioned, I'm a director of uh, the World Gold Council. I head up our member and market relations function, but I've been here for uh, 15 years or so. And in that time, I've worked uh, in most aspects of the business. Um, I'll explain what that business is in a second. Yeah. Uh, my current role basically means that I manage um, initiatives, projects, and and frankly, relationships that aim to bridge the gap between the supply side, that is the the members of the World Gold Council and the broader gold mining community, and the demand side, which is the markets, the investors, the consumers in gold. Um, Now, the World Gold Council was formed uh, in 1987, so that's 32 years ago, by some of the larger gold miners at the time, um, and they realized that uh, they operated a, lo- a very long way from where gold was consumed. Um, uh, you know, even in the modern age, that is tr- true apart from China. Um, and they needed a, an organization, a global organization that they hoped would be able to uh, create or protect and create a healthy market for the product. So that meant basically an organization which could act and operate in regions and markets where they, the gold miners, had no footprint, no expertise, and frankly, uh, no influence. Now, over the years, what that's meant, to, to give you an example of what you know what market development means for us, we have been involved in uh, guiding the liberalization and development of the Chinese gold market, now the world's largest. Um, we've been involved and are still involved in, in most of these processes in terms of modernizing the Indian gold market. We've opened up investment products uh, so that both private and institutional investors can access gold. We are still the only of the world's largest gold ETF uh, and that changed the nature of our business. It meant that we started to actually, if you like, have um, skin in the game. We we basically 
uh, own a product which is uh, the, one of the, the market leaders and created a whole load of other products. So now you have in the gold ETF market, you know, uh, well over $100 billion of gold that has been taken off the market. Uh, and we produce guidance and standards to allow the whole gold supply chain, uh, including gold mining and the wider trading trading uh, market infrastructure to make sure that's fit for purpose, to make sure it's responsible, efficient, transparent. Um, and so with all of that activity, the idea, uh, the aim is in the end to ensure the widest access to gold for the widest set of global participants. Um, our recent focus has been on trying to ensure gold lies at the heart of mainstream investment thinking. Um, and certainly in my time here, I've seen a shift in focus from looking at all the global gold markets of the world, technology, jewelry and investment uh, to a primary focus on investment, because that's where we think um, value and volume can be created. Uh, structural change can be created. And that means that we look at the long term institutional investors of scale, central banks, pension funds, foundations and endowments and ask uh, one if we can facilitate their gold investment and support it. But very importantly is if we can actually uh, create a broader investment base, because an awful lot of those investors do not look to gold. Uh, gold is still peripheral to them. So, and that also has implications, I think, for the whole gold sector, uh, including gold mining. I mean, that's yeah. that's kind of a, a very brief summary of, of what we do and what we mean by gold. Uh, gold market development. Um, the council aspect, I should point out, the council aspect are the gold miners. So our board uh, comprise uh, the CEOs of some of the world's larger gold mining companies. Uh, so many of the companies you've heard of. Um, and they together represent, I think, around 55% now of all industrialized gold production. So a fairly substantial uh, mandate uh, and representative of a majority almost, and certainly a, a very substantial component of gold mining. Yeah, I mean, that was good. actually going to be my uh, next question. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of uh, listeners that are, are from the mining community and probably more mining people. Um, sure. And I was going to say, what relationships do you have with the, the actual mining industry as opposed to investors? So, so like I say, our... our um, our, our mandate, our board, our governance, um, th what we do is is guided by those gold miners. So every quarter, the 25 of the CEOs from uh, you know the, the major gold miners, they, they sit down and basically evaluate what we're doing. Uh, they look at what where we should put our priorities. And in terms of mining, uh, you know, I think the big difference in the last decade or so has been operating in a way which we think will benefit the broader gold mining community guided by them. So we've done, we introduced uh, something called the conflict-free gold mining standard, which um, the conflict-free gold standard, which allowed gold miners to potentially operate in risky areas or, or um, high-risk areas in a way that was transparent and responsible. We were responsible for in terms of mining costs, the cost metrics, current all in, all in and all in sustaining costs, they were guided by us in terms of how they are reported. We basically got together with our members and the, and the CFOs and the finance teams and said, okay, how do you report? How do you think consistent reporting can be? I think that's transformed or been accepted broadly by the industry. Um, and there's a whole lot of issues regarding um, license to operate, um, explaining uh, and providing data about gold mining socioeconomic impacts. Um, currently, we're working on something called the Responsible Gold Mining Principles. 
So there's a whole load of other things we do to uh, support, if you like, the broad gold mining sector. But in terms of interaction, that is uh, uh, pretty regular in the terms of our board. And then we basically interact with a very broad set of stakeholders from from the analysts in gold mining communities through to uh, all of the um, mining associations and minerals councils, etc. So, yeah, a, a fairly broad set of engagement. But it's 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 fair to say that um, we're not just uh, focused on the markets and investors um, which was, to be honest, probably more the case uh, a decade or so ago. Now we try and bridge the whole gap, the whole the whole supply chain from the miners to the markets. Got you. So, what the, the World Gold Council? What kind of people have you got working working for you, or as as a I suppose as an organisation? What the type of different disciplines do you have? It's very very broad. Yeah. Um, uh, given our objectives, we we have uh, a fair number of economists. Surprise, yeah. surprise. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we have uh, – so in terms of with the fact that we've got investment products, we have to have people who are used to operating in, in a regulated space. We don't have um, any uh, experts or authorities specifically on gold mining in terms of geology or mining engineers, except, of course, a couple of the people we employ were trained initially as mining engineers. They've Their careers have changed and developed since. But nonetheless, that's not our, our business is not to guide the businesses of our members. Um, we are fairly confident that they are far better equipped to do so than we are. So uh, our expertise is in markets, in analysis, in policy, um, in in marketing and communications, uh, and so an awful lot of what we do is trying to make sure that you know messages get out there. We employ a fairly large research team. In fact, probably in the metals and precious metal space, we probably have one of the world's largest research teams. It's not that large, but actually there isn't that much out there in terms of detailed research and consistent research. So we like to think that we provide. Um, the data sets for the global industry, whether it be um, specifically on, on, you know, supply, but more to do with where gold is being bought, how it's being bought, why it's being bought. So the markets, uh, the markets and gold's use and consumption is our core expertise. And that's where most people are employed. Nonetheless, um, you can't, you know, operate in the gold space without coming across people within the organization who once upon a time were probably trained as mining engineers or have some uh, relevant background. Yeah. But most of it, most of it, like I say, is on a, a, a market focus, a policy focus, a research focus. Yep, yeah, no worries. Um, as the World Gold Council represents sort of over half of all industrialized gold production, um, and obviously you've been with the company for a while, you must have seen some shifts and changes in the sector, obviously, during your time. What do you see as the big trends and factors driving gold mining? Well, I think, you know, currently we've obviously seen a return to M&A and, and, uh, and I think there's still considerable scope for uh, further consolidation of the sector. I mean, if you look at, the, if you look at gold mining compared to, to other, the other um, mining and mineral sectors, then you're sometimes struck by the sheer number of small, single asset, single project gold companies out there. And they're all competing for, uh, for funding, uh, funding which has frankly become uh, more scarce and more difficult. And I think that makes the sector fairly vulnerable, uh, particularly in times when you've got a market environment, when investors are looking to de-risk and, and therefore 
funds become even scarcer, that pool of, of, of resource becomes more difficult to find. So I think, you know, moving towards efficiencies of scale, uh, sharing of resources, um, diversification and diversification of risk, sharing of risk more generally, I think they will all drive consolidation um, in, in search of a kind of more robust organizations. And I, and I think, I, I, as I say, I think that's a current trend we've seen recently. I expect it to continue. Um, I guess another major uh, trend that we're hearing a lot of, and I think this is, you know, certainly going to reshape potentially gold mining, and that is technology, technology and innovation. Uh, you know, you can't go to a, a mining event or pick up a mining publication these days without that being, uh, you know, foregrounded and highlighted. But I think it's, I think it's fair to say that it is key to the future of the industry. I think um, this is a trend we'll see accelerate. I think, you know, you've all heard the buzzwords, the use of artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things, big data, smart automation. I think all of those are starting to be used now. I think when they when they are used in an integrated fashion, um, they have the potential to actually transform the industry. And I think transform the industry in terms of its 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 skill sets in terms of um, the nature of the business uh, in terms of efficiency, um, but also I think, and this is quite an interesting implication: transform how the nature of how gold mining is is both managed, but how it's perceived by the wider world. I think that that embracing technology, innovation being at the heart of what miners do, rather than it just being um, a sort of a tool for a specific purpose. I think integrated technology innovation digitization whatever the phrase if you if you look at what the potential is that may reshape reshape gold mining um, so i think that's that's quite important um and the other factor worth mentioning it's something i'm i'm um deeply embedded with is the move towards the trend towards companies embracing um esg embracing you know progressive environmental social and government's policies and strategies that are then placed at the very heart of the business i think you know we've had a, 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 a i think a lot of good intentions and a lot of you know very uh, positive activity but csr uh, has often been seen as a bolt on in previous generations and i think um the placing uh, ESG at the heart of the business. I think it has the potential to appeal to a broader set of investors. And I think that's a big challenge at the moment for gold mining to ensure that gold mining will uh, broaden its investor base. Um, and I think, you know, we, I think it's fair to say that in, in, in the last decade, we've seen a shrinking pool in terms of investors and institutional investors um, uh, operating in the gold mining sector, I think a new generation uh, are going to expect greater levels of commitment, consistency and uh, transparency in, in how gold mining operates. And I think we're seeing some pretty strong signs uh, of a move in that direction. And if you look at the big trends in, in investment, uh, a lot of them now are placing ESG right at the heart of how they view assets, how they evaluate sectors. So I think that's going to be key. Um, just to kind of go back to what we're currently doing, I mentioned it, I think, at the, at the, at the top of this uh, chat. Um, you know, for us, we're we busy defining what responsible gold mining actually means in practice. Uh, we will be launching a set of detailed principles uh, soon that are principles that will be, you know, reported on. And that will cover the whole spectrum of responsible business and sustainability issues and risks from, you know, 
labor relations, water management, um, environmental stewardship, uh, the whole gamut. Basically, we're going to set, up, set out principles so that people, investors, stakeholders can basically say this is what responsible gold mining looks like. And more to the point, this is how companies are performing within that framework. So I think that's key. Uh, and I think that that direction of travel for gold mining is is kind of uh, an important trend, one that, again, I expect to accelerate. Um, and I think it will accelerate. If it does so, as I say, it may have the beneficial impact of bringing new investors to gold mining, which I think will be uh, a benefit to the whole sector. Yep, certainly. You made some obviously good points there, but obviously technology and especially CSR. And I think, and I've interviewed um, interviewed quite a few guests on the podcast and that generally always comes up around CSR and how responsible uh, and mining companies should be more accountable and responsible to CSR. So, yeah, no, certainly I, 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 see, I see that becoming more of a focal point for mining companies. So, yeah, no, yeah. I certainly agree. I think there's a lot of there was a lot of always been a lot of good activity and and I think uh, and that shouldn't be underestimated but I think the discussions around CSR were often seen as additional I think and I think uh, what's what the dis- current um, discussions around um, ESG ag- agendas and you know like this the key is not just to be seen to be making positive action but actually from from board level down you are committing to the to the business. Uh, embracing ESG performance, the idea that you will you will be seen to perform well on these issues, and I think that's that's changing businesses. Um, my own my own particular area is currently is in, in gold and climate change, and you've seen huge changes in terms of how the investor community has made demands of oil and gas to change. And I think whilst well, I think gold mining is in a far more constructive position. On that particular issue, but I think again it can show that it's um, ahead of the curve in, in basically uh, committing to uh, transparency and um, and progressive action. So, yeah, I think I see I see that as a as you know again a, a major trend over the next uh, few years. Yeah, certainly. Um, obviously, with the gold price being fairly positive lately, um, I mean rising over to fourteen hundred dollars an ounce. Um, what do you put this down to? What are the main, yeah. main drivers for it? Yeah, it's a, it's the question probably we're asked uh, more than any other. We're always asked about the price. Um, yeah. Legally, we can't forecast the price because yeah. because of, of, of many issues. But we, what we do, what we can do, is basically say, well, we've spent a lot of time analysing the price in great detail. And I think whenever you discuss price movements and trends, it's useful to differentiate the long term from the short term. Now. I think the recent move above 1400 is significant because it it represents a breakout from a long established pattern. Uh, We've had a sideways pattern that is gold, the gold price oscillating between uh, 1150 and 1350 US dollars per ounce. That's been that's been in place since 2016, and it's largely been driven by a very particular set of of investor uh, investor perceptions of gold, uh, market sentiment, very much again shaped by the US economy, equity valuations, and US dollar strength. and, and frankly, that was prompted, uh, that market condition, uh, the trigger for that was the, the Trump election. But since, excuse me, since then, you've seen uh, market conditions that have created 
capital market sentiment that has been, um, I wouldn't say negative to gold, but it's certainly not been supportive of uh, any kind of upward trend. I think we're starting to see, if you like, a reevaluation of that. So in the background, whilst all of those, you know, equity values, if you look at look at U.S. equity prices, the, the, the you know record levels, um, seemingly every day. But in the background, we've had a set of simmering risks and economic economic conundrums. I think you could say. Um, that investors may have been aware of, but they were kind of turned away from. I think they've been reminded of those risks. And I think they're starting to look beyond that immediate market sentiment, that short termism that has dominated um, the capital markets in the West, certainly. Um, and when they do that, gold typically prospers. And I think we've seen enough of that happen to break us out of a sideways movement. And as soon as you break out of a sideways movement, you get, can then have a different conversation and investors start to look at gold uh, differently. So I think we're in a, in a slightly different space now. Um, and I think the other aspect, and some, I mentioned some of those, those risks. Well, well you know, um, we've got a relatively fragile, uh, the developed economies are, are relatively fragile in terms of their growth prospects. So you've got low growth rates and you've got um, something we've talked about, you know, consistently over the last few years, but you've got the stubborn persistence and uh, at scale, um, you know, very large number of negative yield bearing assets, zero yeah. or negative yield bearing assets. So I think the estimates currently, you know, 12 to 13 trillion of negative yield bearing bonds. Basically, bonds that don't cost, don't earn you anything. In fact, they actually cost you money to own. So that's a very substantial asset class, which is not generating anything. It's actually costing uh, asset, the owners of those assets. Now, I think that means you have to look for yield somewhere else. And and traditionally, the fixed income market and, and the bond market was where you look for stable fixed income. That's why it's called fixed income. It was relatively... So if you haven't got that, where else do you get relatively relatively stable growth or, or relatively stable returns. And gold is a relatively stable asset. It's, it's you know, it's a, you're able to trust in, asset, in gold in the sense that it's a relatively low risk asset. It has, you know, lots of risk mitigation properties uh, as, as an inflation hedge, etc. And so um, I think, you know, that reassessment of, of capital market risk, along with the fact that there is a dearth of growth opportunities and over the longer term, um, you know, a, a, a desperate search for stability and yield. I think they, they play into, if you like, a longer term positive outlook for gold. Uh, and structurally, if you look at the, I mentioned that, that's the kind of shorter term because we're moving away from that irrational exuberance that we saw in the US and Western markets. I think if we move away from that slightly, then you start to look to the longer term. And in the longer term, um, Structurally, the gold market is in a relatively robust state, and it has been for some time. I mean, its supply and demand dynamics are, are strong. It's got a growth path and a longer-term value value uh, tra trajectory, a value path, if you like, that is aligned with big global megatrends in terms of income growth and wealth creation in the populous nations of fast-growing economies, particularly India, China, and Southeast Asia. If you look at those economies and you look at the GDP growth per capita 
in them, actually the growth in the gold market is very much aligned with them. So it means that, you know, looking beyond immediate capital market concerns, looking to big growth drivers and the drivers of global economy, actually gold is well positioned. So I think that once now we've broken out of that sideways movement, um, I would hope that there'll be a slight reappreciation of the of the future prospects for grow, growth in in both the gold market, but also in the price. Yeah, I won't ask you um, what you what you think the future price will be until until the end. <laughs> um, but I mean, over the long term, what drives gold? Um, I mean, it differs from many other metals in that its value um, doesn't seem related to supply and demand. Why is that? Yeah, and that's it's it. It relates to that comment I made about the, di- the differentiating between long and short term drivers. Um, it's it's actually driven by a, a uniquely diverse set of factors. It's unlike any other commodity. It's different from other metals, and it's diver- different from other commodities. In fact, because of that uniquely broad set of consumers. So you know. Each sector and each geography which buys gold differs tremendously in terms of why and when they buy gold. Uh, you know, as an example, you know, if you're a central banker from, shall we say, the Central Bank of Poland, who recently bought, bought 100 tons of gold, you're doing that to diversify your reserves, your national reserves, uh, primarily away from U.S. dollar-denominated assets. So you yeah. see gold, see gold as a stability and diversification tool. That's a very, very long way away and very far removed from the motivations driving an Indian farming family saving up to buy gold for their daughter's wedding collection. Um, that said, both of those are very significant markets for gold. And the, the, the fact that they are so different means that unlike any other metal, gold has this diversity of demand. Now, the reason why that's important is it underpins gold's uh, robust behavior, its lack of correlation to mainstream um, mainstream assets and convergent market conditions and that in turn makes it um, a compelling portfolio asset so particularly when capital markets are under duress because it doesn't behave it doesn't behave like them like most mainstream assets because of those reasons I mentioned this diversity of demand um, and then on the supply side uh, because obviously cap in, in kind of Economics 101 and commodities 101, you know, supply and demand, you look at uh, both and you therefore can can make some um, estimation, re- reasonable, rational esp- explanation of the price. But for gold, like I say, you've got this diversity of demand and also you've got diversity of supply. Um, so what we've seen, if you look at the structural changes in the gold market uh, since the 70s and 80s, certainly, we've seen uh, increased diversity of production, meaning gold is mined, now mined in, in a vast number of countries. There's no concentration risk in terms of supply, unlike there is in, shall we say, oil or platinum. It's There's no country or region that now dominates mine production. We've moved a long way from, you know, 70% of the world's gold coming from South Africa. Uh, China is now the current largest production producer, but actually it only mines 13% or so, 12 or 13% of the world's gold. Um, so it, there's no dominant supply source. And then we've also seen um, the growth of recycling as a source. It was always you know, reasonably substantial, but now it represents, you know, over 25%, typically tw- between 25% and sometimes up to as much as 30% of supply. And that actually functions as a buffer for volatility, to supply side volatility, which is why when you look at gold as an asset, it is one of the lowest 
um, has the lowest volatility of most metals and commodities. It's um, yeah, it's it's it's. We always say it is a commodity, but it's not because it's so much more. Uh, I mean, I think that's one that that diversity of both supply and demand side drivers are, are what makes it so different. Yeah, um, I noticed um, the World Gold Council membership includes two of the large Chinese uh, gold mining companies. Um, and we hear a lot about the significance and impacts of Chinese participants on the gold market. Um, do you have any specific insights into the nature of, uh, of the Chinese gold market and how the Chinese gold mining has evolved to get to its current position? And as you mentioned, they're the, the biggest uh, producers, did you say, of gold or I, I, sorry, I, it, well, but yeah, I, I yeah. did. I, I, yeah. I, 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 could, I could talk all day about China, to be honest, because yeah. it's, it's so significant and we spend quite a lot of time um, both there. Fortunately, if you are interested, you don't just need to listen to me. We've documented this. There's quite a lot of research on that evolution. So if you come to go to the website, you can find plenty of data on how China has evolved. But um, it is, yes, I said it's the world's largest producer. It's the world's largest producer, the world's largest Im- importer. And the world's largest consumer of gold. So basically, it 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 mines more, it imports more, and it buys more. Um, and and that is that evolution has been quite remarkable when you consider that, uh, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, gold, the Chinese gold market was wasn't really talked about. It was uh, you know 100 or 200 ton maximum market, and, you know, substantial. But that was purely jewelry. Um, there was a little smuggled investment on the side, but it, it was not a dynamic market in any sense, um, and there were no minimal growth prospects, except, of course, it has now evolved to a 1,000-ton market. And if you consider that, you know, what what is current current annual mining is 3,500 tons, then 1,000 tons going to one country is very, very significant. 1,000-ton uh, market, and it's a very efficient um market in the sense that it has, a, it has an exchange at the heart of it, the Shanghai Gold Exchange. Um Meaning, therefore, the flows through gold uh, are managed uh, through the sorry, the flows of gold through the country are managed very well, and that de- market development um, was guided. I'm pleased to say by by the World Gold Council. One of our after we were formed, we've been always present in the Chinese market, and uh, and we came up with uh, suggestions uh, in tandem with some state research agencies in in China on how they might liberalise uh, the gold market and. If you can cast, if you're old enough, and you can cast your minds back to you know the 90s, that basically to propose that the Chinese deregulate, open up, you know, a market when their economy is is planned and centralised, was quite brave. But they did so, um, and uh, you know that 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 stream of of initiatives and uh, deregulation and liberalisation happened very quickly. Um, so as I say. Gold investment ownership was illegal until 2004. It is now one of the world's largest uh, gold investment markets, certainly in terms of private ownership. Um, and I think, um, very interestingly for gold miners, gold miners in China don't just mine gold. They own key segments in the whole supply chain. So it means it's a very integrated um business that's why i say china is unique um i mentioned 
most gold miners don't operate where gold is is bought. Well, China, the Chinese do, and so Chinese gold miners you will will own not only mines, uh, not only not only smelting and processing plants, but they will own refineries. They will own, uh, in some cases, jewelry stores, jewelry factories, and actual um, you know jewelry stores at the retail level. It's a very integrated market, um, and so that state support uh, has been key. Basically, the government saying we see. Gold as a strategically important um, asset and commodity, um, but also it it was e- uh, relatively easy to to for that demand to grow because the demand was always there. Gold was always in um, at the heart of Chinese culture. It was just basically the, the regulatory um, regime did not allow it to to flourish. So. Um, yeah, Chinese, the Chinese market, Chinese gold mining, I think, has evolved. In, and again, you've got consolidation. So you had, you know, the Chinese gold gold mining was, was minimal uh, and, until the Chinese started to um, support, the state started to support um, companies and uh, the formation of companies. And the consolidation has been um, uh, considerable, moving away from an artisanal, um, production model to um, state-of-the-art modern uh, Chinese miners, and and I think those Chinese miners are increasingly eager to be seen as international leaders. So you've seen uh, JVs with a number of the world's majors now. You've seen increased um, investment. I think a lot of that investment is now with with joint partners. The, I think the Chinese have recognised that the the best way for them to uh, to share risk in terms of their involvement in foreign markets is to some is to enter into uh, partnerships and JVs and I think that internationalization is something within that we see it across the whole gold sector but it is key that the China the Chinese seeing gold mining as a strategically important industry um, and one that they are keen to become, if you like, uh, internationally significant, uh, as it frankly already is. So, um, yeah, it's it's been a remarkable transition over, you know, 15 years or so. Yeah. Um, obviously, you mentioned China, China being um, one of the biggest um, buyers of gold. I also read the other day uh, a couple of the Eastern European countries buying large quantities of gold. And then the UK... I don't know how many years ago ago actually sold a lot of their gold. What what would you say the the reason for that shift? Why are these countries, for instance, the countries I've just mentioned in Eastern Europe and China, why are they buying up buying up gold? What what is their reasons behind that? Sure. So you you you're talking about the central bank purchasing the so basically yes yeah. so yes Gordon Gordon Brown famously sold our um, gold well not all of it actually he he Majority announced of it. Well, he sold over half. Actually, he stopped selling the amount. He, he announced he announced he was selling. Uh, I think over 400 tons. Uh, I think I think he was going to sell about 410. I think from memory in 1999. Um, he did it in a rather strange way. He announced he was going to sell it, thereby potentially depressing the price. And then he auctioned it over a period. But he stopped those auctions. He stopped those auctions, and the price had already started to rise. Actually, the price had continued to rise. In some ways, it's obviously varied, but ever since that was the low point for gold for the gold price in the modern era. Um, uh, why why modern central banks are buying gold? Well, I think it's it's absolutely uh, key to this idea of gold as a stable, trusted asset. 
Um, so yeah, and those in those days, and and when Gordon Brown's without you know second guessing his motivations, uh, but in those days, I think it's fair to say gold was neglected by a lot of central banks. It was actually there was net selling for many many years in terms of the Europeans, and the European central banks had large amounts of gold. They had large amounts of gold because before 19 the 1970s when gold was freed, you had the Bretton Woods exchange rate system, which meant the world's exchange rates were pegged to gold. So they were obliged to own, to own um, gold to cover their um, national reserves. And basically that has changed massively since with the, with the, the re-evaluation of um, basically the need to protect reserve, national reserves. And it was key to this. I think a key trigger was the financial crisis. Yeah. I think the financial crisis when frankly, the fact that the majority of the world's reserves, central bank reserves, are held in dollar-denominated assets. And when you saw uh, such fragility in the U.S. economy and that concentration risk, the fact that, you you know, the world's central banks in some ways do have their eggs in one basket, I think there was a need to diversify away. And suddenly those gold reserves looked uh, to have, you know, uh, a renewed, a renewed um, purpose. Uh, so I think... Um, they have that stopped the European Central Bank stopped selling gold. There's been very little selling, and it's usually just to cover coin production. It's so they've they've stopped selling gold. The world's developing banks and the emerging market banks uh, have started buying gold and now been buying gold in, in considerably large quantities. You know, last last year was uh, pretty much a record in the in the modern era, uh, over 600 tons. And you are talking about now. Basically, central bank buying is a major source. So the difference in terms of from Gordon Brown's day to the modern era is that central bankers across the world now recognize the value of gold as a diversification asset, particularly away from U.S. dollar denominated assets, the concentration in U.S. dollar denominated assets. And so you, the countries you mentioned, and I mentioned Poland earlier, but Poland, uh, China, Russia, Kazakhstan, India, um, it's, a, it's a, a fairly broad set of in, in, uh, central banks now. And we, can, we expect that to continue, a trend that will continue. They are eager to make sure that they have gold as a stabilizing uh, diversification asset within the reserve assets. So yes, um, I think the I think the the attitude of central banks and clearly the the behaviour of central banks has completely flipped since uh, the nineteen ninety ninety the nineteen nineties. Yeah, got you. That that makes that makes sense then. Um, what are the common activities and priorities um, at the World Gold Council uh, that are likely to impact the gold mining community? I think I mentioned uh, we're working. Uh, I think the the, the yeah, the one program of work with uh, most uh, immediate direct impact or likely impact on the gold miners is likely to be the responsible gold mining principles. This is yeah. this the, the 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 idea that we are defining uh, ten major principles. Beneath them, there is I think uh, almost fifty. Uh, detailed principles, and those those principles are principles that gold miners w we hope will adopt in terms of responsible um, business and operational uh, procedures and processes, and where appropriate they will be um, reporting on their performance against them. And I think that basically will allow 
um, the world, the broader world, but also investors to actually understand what we mean by responsible gold mining. For a long time, when we talk about responsible gold mining, when we talk about it to our members, but when we talk about it to the wider world in terms of, you know, its socioeconomic benefits, um, its ability to stimulate um, and catalyze uh, economic activity in developing countries, you know, all of the the good stuff that basically gold mining can bring, um, we always say, we always caveat it with, we are talking about responsible gold mining. So the challenge has been, okay, well, what does that mean in practice? What does it mean in detail? And I think the responsible gold mining principles um, will, if you like, detail that, allow people to, 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 to understand it, understand the definition, but also see it in action. So I think that's, that's you know, um, a very specific um, program of direct relevance to gold miners. Um, I do think the wider objective, this wider objective of bringing a gold into the mainstream of, uh, of financial thinking and investment actually should benefit gold miners too. And it comes back to, I think I alluded to it earlier if I didn't state it explicitly, that, you know, in the gold mining space, there's a lot of talk about trying to appeal to the generalist investor, trying to to broaden the investor base rather than have it rather than just talk to a, a narrower set of peoples and funds and i think to do so if gold itself as an asset is in in the in the mainstream is on the radar of mainstream um, fund managers mainstream uh, asset allocators then basically gold mining should be too um, and, and and i think if gold miners can then perform in a way that makes them attractive you know they can offer alpha if you like in addition to to gold's long-term growth path that i think that basically starts to allow them to expand the investor base so i would say there's specific work such as the rgmps there's some some work i can't talk about um in the kind of policy space that will have specific uh, pops perhaps implications or impacts on gold miners but i think this idea that if we achieve our objective of making gold a mainstream asset, that will actually benefit the gold miners too. Yeah. Um, the World Gold Council often talks about the strategic case uh, for gold. What does what does this um, mean? And what is its uh, implications for gold mining companies and their uh, investors? Yeah, it's it's in some ways, it's, uh, it's the, the detail behind that... that um, objective of making gold mainstream what we refer to we we refer to gold as the uh, you know the strategic investment case for gold or gold as we often use the phrase gold as you say as a strategic asset Uh, now that refers to several key strands that that endure in terms of gold's value and benefits benefits as a long-term asset Um, and we discuss that in the context of wider portfolio so we're not basically saying you know it's all about gold we're saying gold has a number of virtues as an asset in relation to how investors generally uh, invest in the modern world. And what I mean by that is, you know, gold offers relatively attractive long-term returns. It is, you know, over the long term, and and the long term is key when we're talking about, you know, strategic case. Um, But it's, it's, the power as a as a risk hedge and a diversification asset that really sets it apart. So there are other riskier assets that will generate um, you know, more generous returns, but the, but you have to be willing to accept that risk. Uh, whereas with gold, you have the ability that if you add gold to a portfolio, and we've demonstrated this, you know, time and time again, um, statistically, historically, you can add gold 
to a to a mainstream portfolio of equities and bonds um and over time uh, even in different markets and different currencies that gold will benefit the overall risk return portfolio so basically keep it simple gold adds balance and functions as market insurance but it should be therefore classed as a we call it an enduring foundation asset. It's not a temporary tactical uh, overlay in trouble times, as it's often discussed. It's not that people often describe it as a safe haven asset. We say yes, but actually think of it as long-term enduring market insurance. And also it offers balance. It will outperform when your other assets are in trouble. And that is, if you like, the strategic case. Um, the implication for mining companies is that if mining could operate, could if the mining profile, if the asset profile of a mining company could perform something similar, it suddenly becomes appealing to a far broader set of, of potential investors, um, because people looking to invest in long-term assets currently, you know, there's a big move in the institutional space into infrastructure. Well, if gold mining can start to offer strategic benefits uh, in terms of both both returns but also stability uh, to some extent um, then i think it suddenly becomes a more compelling uh, a compelling asset class yeah um how do you think the issue of uh, resource nationalism will impact the prospects for gold and for gold mining uh, yeah that's, well that's a always a hot topic um and i think you know if if we, if we look at the I recently uh, noted the, um, I think, Verisk Maplecroft produce a resource nationalism index. And I recently uh, read their report suggesting that, you know, resource national nationalism as they measure it is on the rise in 30, 30 different countries. So we have to basically say that if that is the case, then the, this, the relatively recent um, heightened environment in terms of nationalism and popularism have challenged certain assumptions about, you know, globalization, foreign investment, the, the path to development and prosperity. I think resource nationalism could sometimes question those, but I think we, we, you need to look at it, uh, take, a step, take a step back. Whilst it, it will undoubtedly make the mining landscape riskier, I think there's two ways of looking at resource nationalism. And I think there's one way is quite simple, and that is it can be viewed as a kind of fair or natural expression of a country's desire to make the most from the natural resources with which it is endowed. I, I, I think, you know, if you, you have to, external and foreign stakeholders have to uh, acknowledge and respect that motivation. I think the challenge and the big risk is when there's a mismatch between uh, foreign investment and specifically miners and their investors, their expectations and their invested capital uh, and the capacity of host governments and national their, their national institutions to create environments which allow those, uh, which allow uh, rational expectations uh, regarding how that foreign investment will flourish. You know, you need kind of the right legal and regulatory stability, and you need you need the institutions to to have the capacity to allow the governments to allow value to be created by mining. So, it's it's. Um, that sounds a little complicated, maybe, but I think given the capital intensity and long-term nature of mining projects, stability is key. A stable environment is key to ensure that enduring value can be created by gold mining. And, and if it's to be of, of enduring value to local governments, communities, stakeholders, shareholders for that matter, then that stability is key. And that's where resource nationalism uh, frequently is a, is a threat 
And I think I think it's important to note that gold mining, you know, it, from our point of view, responsible gold mining, if it's allowed to create and contribute value in a stable and sustainable way, then that can have a significant, as I mentioned, significant catalyzing effect on local economies. And it can actually accelerate uh, socioeconomic development in uh, in developing economies. But that's got to, to do so. It's got to, to, to allow that to happen, to allow that uh, sustainable value to be created. It has to be done so in partnership with responsible governments who recognize the need that companies need to be able to return capital to investors and lenders. And I think resource, I think resource nationalism, um, if, it's, uh, if it's, it's the negative expressions, if you like, of that motivation I mentioned earlier, um, basically um, start to uh, produce punitive demands that basically don't allow value to be created from, from foreign investment and, and specifically from, from the value that gold mining can create. So the short answer is I see if, if resource nationalism is on the increase, I see that as complicating the risk landscape for mining. I think the challenge for gold miners and, and obviously for host governments is to better understand or to discuss, to, to agree the value to be created, to, to, to have shared expectations. Yeah. Um, the last question, which uh, you probably get asked this all the time, um, is where do, you, where do you see the price of gold um, over, so I suppose, the short and medium term? And where do you think, where do you think it will get to as a, as a high? Well, Rob, you, you may have not heard me that I'm not allowed to predict the price of gold, so I'm not going to. I'm not going to. It's, it's actually I would be in, in in legal hot water if I if I tried to. Um, yeah. I I will re- revert back, if I may, yep. to to my comments about the fact that having broken out of a of a a three year sideways movement, um, having broken out of that movement, then certainly now it's above the fourteen hundred ounce level. We would be looking for an upward trend to continue. Beyond that. I am not going to say um, the long term, short term, medium, long term. The long term will depend on whether that big physical demand that, that I mentioned those, you know, the big um, markets of India, China, Southeast Asia, and also it, it should be said the investment markets uh, in the West, um, if they are able to flourish and uh, react in a relatively positive way, I think we would expect momentum on that upward trend. So, you know, the question is, does $1,400 look like a a medium term floor for the price? It's a bit early to say, but nonetheless, I think we've broken out of a a sideways movement. I think that's brought quite a lot of a lot more attention to gold. Yeah, no, I I understand that. Obviously, uh, you're you're unable to predict that figure. So, yeah, no. No worries about that. Um, really appreciate your time, John, for taking the time to uh, sort of do this podcast. I think the audience will get great value from understanding more about gold and more about the gold mining industry. Um, if our audience wants to uh, uh, contact you and maybe ask you a few questions around the gold mining industry, um, how can they go about doing that? Um, we've we've got a public. Uh, they can well, they can email me, email me email me, um, but uh, it can get to me via just info info at gold If they put my name on it, it will come to me. Um, I won't probably pass out my personal email address simply because I, I get we get bombarded. But info at gold with my name on it, John Mulligan, and it will get to me. And I'm more than happy to answer any questions. Yeah, no worries. And are you on any other social media platforms? 
Oh sure, yeah, yeah. You can find you can find me on 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 LinkedIn certainly, and I'm I'm out and about and and speaking public generally. So please, if you do, if I am speaking, um, or if you do bump into me in any event, please come and say hello. Yeah, no worries. Um, alternatively, you can contact myself via email, and I can pass those questions on to uh, on to John. My email address is rob at mining-international.org. Um, appreciate your time for listening to this uh, podcast. Hopefully, hopefully you got a lot of uh, content from that around the gold mining industry. I certainly did. And um, and until next time, happy mining. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining.